Hey everyone, welcome. For this episode and the next, we will be talking about teenagers. Don't worry, it'll be fun. Now I know I shouldn't do this, but I'm going to give away the plot at the very top of the episode. Here it is. Teenagers are people too. Seriously, it's true. This conversation is with Max Carell and Tim Bailey. My name is Lucas Weeks, and this is the Out of Our Minds Podcast. So I decided earlier today that we were going to talk about teenagers. And when we were talking at our staff meeting today, Tim, you immediately said that you wanted to begin by talking about what it's like to be a teenager. I think, Max, that you immediately started nodding your head. Why? Why? If, if we're going to talk about teenagers, why is it the case that you would want to begin a podcast episode about teenagers by talking about what it's like to be a teenager? First, we should say that this last week, Mary Lee and I went to our high school youth group. And I hope everybody heard that we have a high school youth group and all of you should have high school youth groups. And we'll get into that later. This is going to be a series of podcasts on this subject from what Lucas has said. But the subject that the couples that work with our high school students asked us to speak on was the difficulty of being a teenager. So that's one answer. Max? Yeah, it's so difficult. What? Why? Why is it so difficult to be a teenager? Everything is happening physically, emotionally, relationally. It's this uh, cauldron of pressure. Change. Your body changes. Your emotions change with your body. Your relationships all change. You're suddenly at the place where you're supposed to jump off. You're mm -hmm. jumping off point. This is it. You know, you're jumping out of the plane with the parachute, wondering if it will deploy, you know, as you go. And all of those things happen at one time. And you don't have the wisdom. You're trying to, to pedal as fast as you can to get the wisdom to help you if you're if you're doing well, mm. you're actually realizing that you want wisdom, mm. that you want people to help you. If you're not doing well, you just are, you've become closed off from everybody and you're just going to try to go into survival mode and it's not going to be good. And typically that's going to happen in the home where you have known for many years that you are not the priority of the home or of your parents, but that they're fighting with each other is the priority, their desire to present themselves in all their excellence and sophisticated discernment of truth, beauty, and goodness, and that you are a placeholder for their aspirations among their peers. And so by the time you get to high school, you know that you are not their priority and you just can't wait to get out because they're not helping you individuate and become adults and learn wisdom. They are all about burnishing their image and you not messing it up. Okay. Well, let me take up the side of the parents for a second here. Mm -hmm. If this is a battle between parents and, and high schoolers, which a lot of times it is, aren't teenagers the ones who are lazy, rebellious, Looking for a way to push the limit, push the edge. Well, it, teenagers are sinners. Yeah. 
And the, the thing that the parents should have is the ability to recognize their teenagers are sinners, but also the ability to recognize that they themselves are sinners and that they need and that they should be ahead of the game in order to help their teenager to negotiate the reality of their sin and not have the parent's sin itself compound the difficulty of the teenagers realizing how to deal with their sin. But that's what ends up happening. So the parents come in, well, not always, obviously, but always in some ways it happens. Mm. We all sin against our teenagers and our children. Our sins come out on them. But for the most part, what we want to have is that our sins don't compound the problem. Well, what would that look like? I mean, what do you mean by that? Well, Tim's already brought it up in one sense. He's he's basically saying, talking about people burnishing their image. And Mm. so parents have a sin and the sin is that they want to present well to other people yeah it's not real it's all just it's all image can i tell a story there was a pastor and his wife that was he was very kind to us they offered to have us come out and work at their church for your first presbyterian in boulder colorado and none of their children did well at all Hmm. none of them the son i think he is a christian I'm not going to go into details. The reason that I had a relationship with this pastor was that he had worked at David C. Cook under my father. Mm. And my father had helped him to get this job at First Pres. And so my dad and and the senior pastor First Pres and this man were all very close, good friends. Mm-hmm. And so he wanted to do something to help me, right? I knew that the children were not doing well. And what I found out was that when they were driving from Wheaton, where they lived, out to Boulder, that in the car on the way out, this man had said to his children, basically, I have an opportunity in this new church, and the two of you better not screw it up. Hmm. Well, when I heard that he had said that to them, all of a sudden it flashed in front of me how opposite my mother and father were because I was a problem in Mm -hmm. high school. But I always knew that their bottom line was me and God. Hmm. It was not their image. And it wasn't that they didn't realize that I was hurtful to the respect that they would receive from their peers at the church. That's not the issue. But the issue was they were not burnishing their image. Hmm. They were pleading for my soul. They were disciplining me. They were, you know, it was like I knew they were all in for me as we had our problems. Now, I bring that up because we as parents rarely have a child. Now, some who have adopted children will say, well, that's not true with adoptive children. Some who have children who are their natural flesh and blood would say, well, that's not true of my children. But I will tell you that pastors looking at families over decades will tell you that the children, when they become teenagers, all of a sudden begin to live publicly the sins that they have seen in their home privately. Mm. And so what happens, and this is especially true in the conservative reform world, where everything is like family values, family-centered churches, homeschooling, there is a tremendous attempt to say, we're going to do things differently than our parents did them. 
We're going to have a godly home. We're going to have the family altar. We're going to have the right curriculum. We're going to have classical conversation or uh, Mason, Mary Mason or Mason. Charlotte Mason. Charlotte Mason, whatever that is. Yeah. <clears throat> and we're going to read good books and we're going to listen to Christian music and we're going to do all this stuff. Mm. Well, you know, you can get all the placeholders, but in the end, your character will out. Mm-hmm. And it will out through your children at a time when you can no longer control your children. And so every parent needs to know right away that that child who is a teenager is trying to find their way, his or her way in the world. And they know that they have to individuate. They know they are now able to have children. Mm. They know marriage is coming. They know college is coming. They know outside of the home is coming. And you have to make a decision whether your goal at that period of time for your precious child is to make them successful in that horribly difficult transition or to try to squelch bad decisions, you know, sin, mm. <laughs> you know, to try to compartmentalize them up until the very day they leave home and then tell them to move a thousand miles away. Mm-hmm. In other words, What is it about at this point in your life, parents? Is it about you proving that you did everything right? Or is it about your child's soul? If it's about your child's soul, there's no child that these years are not difficult for. And you need all the help you can get, starting with other Christians in the church. So the first thing I want to say about things to do, okay, Mm -hmm. is I want to read from... Uh, 2 Kings 2.23, it says, And he went up from thence unto Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, there came forth young lads out of the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, thou bald head. Go up, thou bald head. Now, what on earth does this have to do with teenagers? Well, okay, let's go to Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) Jonathan Edwards was despised by the teenagers at his time. They were looking at midwife manuals. He had his hands full. The language they used about their pastor, who was Jonathan Edwards, was despicable. Mm. Now let's look at our children today. The truth is, when children begin to individuate and prepare for adulthood, they cluster, they herd. Teenagers have a herding instinct. This is a group who are yelling up at Elisha mm-hmm. about being bald, okay? Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if you don't know the story, they wish they hadn't done it. <laughs> but you'll have to look it up. I, it's, it's in Second Kings 2. Jonathan Edwards had kids that herded. This is what kids do. You can fight it all you want. You can say, we don't believe in youth groups. But the fact is, Earlier, you were talking about the conflict between children and parents, Mm -hmm. right? You guys remember doing that? I was sitting here thinking, yeah, and the whole point of pastors working with the young men and women of the church is so that the conflict turns from the parents and their children to the parents and the pastors. Hmm. Pastors are to be advocates for the children of the church. And wise parents realize that and know that God has given them the church to help them raise their children. And so I hope that what we have just said on this podcast rejiggers everyone so they're angry and questioning. Hmm. 
because nothing you've been told in any of the books you've read, any of the podcasts you've listened to, any of the people that have all the formulas down from Bill Gothard to uh, family-centered churches to none of them will ever tell you the truth, which is that God has placed families in the family, the household of faith, and that good parents receive an incredible amount of help with their teenagers from other parents, other children of the church, and especially from the pastors of the church. And that's what a youth group is. I always tell the people that work with the youth in our church, you're not there to work with the youth, actually. You're actually there to be a pastor to the parents. But, I mean, when teenagers get together, there's all kinds of bad stuff Yes. That goes on. And so peer pressure that often will push kids to do things that they wouldn't otherwise have done. Is that not a reason to be suspicious of youth groups, of of that herding instinct? That's inevitable. When Mm. do you want it to happen? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you want it to happen then under somewhat of an observable, controlled helped environment or do you want to wait until as tim said they get to an age where okay now we've we've sequestered them and held them and now they they're 18 and they graduated from high school and our work is done we send them off to some university somewhere and then they do it they're going to do it regardless what happens they're going to herd together and then they're going to have to figure out the interactions they're going to have to figure out all of the the ways that they exist and coexist with others in their age group and other and with adults they Mm -hmm. have to they have to figure it out Mm -hmm. and and so when do you give them this like shocking time where there's nothing, no, no help for them at all? Or do you work intentionally to help them to prepare and get to that point and to move through it? The people that are listening to this podcast, I assume, want nothing more than for their children to, to have mm-hmm. sweet relationship with their children and for their children to be walking mm-hmm. with the Lord, right? And so are you just arguing for parents to give their kids space as they... Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. But, absolutely. But but even even at that space within a within a bigger context, you could look at a, a family that's that is completely homeschool and completely home contained and the father is the pastor and the whole world is the home and there is nothing else. Mm. And they could go to church somewhere with a lot of other people like that, and there there isn't any of the helps that Tim was talking about related to the church and the existence of the church and the broader understanding that the children are coming to as they grow into adults. And so suddenly they leave Daddyville, mm. which might also be called Mommyville. <laughs> it is called Mommyville. Well, they leave And Mommyville. the more they claim it's Daddyville, the more you know it's Mommyville. And so they leave that. Well, Tim's saying, okay, look, hey, here's an idea. God set up the church to help families. He set up families to live in the context of God's people in his household. Mm-hmm. He, he set it up that way. And we can do everything we want to deny it, but if we deny it and we, and we refuse to allow ourselves, ourselves access to the benefits of it by protecting and maintaining this little kingdom of our own. Mm-hmm then what will happen is that is one of the sins. 
And it might deal with the burnishing of the image. That's a part of it, I think, is very much true. But another part of it is just this rejection of authority. The sins of the parents go into the children. Mm-hmm. So here's a father, and he raises children who have no understanding of any authority except for the authority of the home. Okay. And they go out, and they become anti-authority everything, mm. except for their little fiefdom. That's all they're going to have for an authority their own little world. They know exactly everything that's being done wrong according to the Constitution of the United States and why the political authorities are stupid. They know why the pastor is stupid because they hear the criticisms of his sermon when they get home every Sunday. They know why the pastor's wife is uh, wears, shall we say, immodest clothes or goes to some dance class or, you know, in other words, everything about that home has been marking those children with the values of the parents. And when I say values, I don't mean God's law. This is Phariseeism, okay? And so they know that they're to listen to classical music, that they're not to read books or not to watch videos that have this in it, but rather prefer things with this in it, truth, beauty, and goodness. Everything about their life has been cosseted according to the preferences of their parents, which their parents never admit are preferences, but always inculcate in their child as principles. Everything in that home is a principle, okay? Mm. And the problem is that you keep wanting to bring up teenagers' sins, and and teenagers have a lot of sins. I had a lot of sins. Mm. But, But the problem is the parents have a lot of sins. And typically... The acorn doesn't fall far from the tree. And that's what you can't get these parents to see. You can't get them to see that they are the ones who have produced in their child the vulnerability to peer pressure. Let me use as an example the issue of a young woman who is tempted by fornication with a boyfriend. Mm -hmm, Okay, mm -hmm. So the parents will say, well, we don't have our daughter in a small group because we don't want her to have the temptation of fornication. We're going to guard and we're going to carefully control the environment in which she becomes sexual, Mm -hmm. all right? And one of the ways we're going to do that is she's not going to be around young men any more than we have to let, and certainly not in the youth group. I mean, you Mm -hmm. know, that's just like, you know, it's just stupid. And so what they do is they're very, very careful to make sure that she, if she goes anywhere with anyone that there's multiple chaperones. Now, I'm not against that. That's what a youth group is called. It's called people going together in a group instead of dating Mm. with good chaperones who are carefully chosen by us as pastors Mm. and often are ordained themselves. Mm -hmm. I mean, (laughs) think about that. Pastors who are the ones leading the youth group, teaching the youth group, talking to the parents. That's what our commitment is. All right. Now, Why is that young woman vulnerable to fornication? Well, if you look at studies, what the studies show, what the testimony is, is that her father is a cold fish, that he can't bring himself to see the beauty of this bud, this rosebud unfolding, okay? You with me? Yep. And celebrate this explosive growth of springtime and tell her how beautiful she is and love her and hug her 
and tell her to go back up and put something that covers more of her skin. That's what produces vulnerability to fornication, is a relationship with a father and a young woman becoming an adult and now sexual that is not good. Mm. He might not know it's not good, mm-hmm. but what a wonderful context for her to come of age with pastors and their wives watching and then going to that father and saying, do you know how beautiful your daughter is? Mm. He says, well, of course I know. Mm. You know, And they say, well, but she doesn't know that you think she's beautiful. Well, why would you say that? Well, we actually asked her whether she thinks she's beautiful. Hmm. And she said, no, she thinks she's ugly. And she's not ugly. (laughs) And so what on earth is going on in your home? Now, right there is when the homeschooling crowd goes berserk because that's what they don't want. I don't care what they say. What they want is right up until individuation has to happen yeah to carefully control it in such a way that they're not humiliated they're not exposed their sins do not get discussed with pastors or elders and i'm just pleading with people to realize that god's given you the brother and sisterhood in christ so that your marriage problems can be helped your prayerlessness can be helped your Mm. ignorance and your Rebellion against authority can be helped. And I'm going through here now, you know, preaching, you know, older women teaching younger women. Mm -hmm. Why would we think it would be any different with our children? Hmm. This last Sunday, after the service, I'm talking to somebody at the front of the sanctuary, and there's a little boy that's about six years old, and he's using a folded, a a rolled up piece of paper as a trumpet. And he's going, and I hear the noise, and it's really obnoxious. I have no idea where it's coming. And then I look down. He's right next to me. Mm. And he's blowing and with a friend. And I'm thinking to myself, are you serious? And I look at him, and I say, hey, listen, no blowing of a trumpet like that in the sanctuary while people are here. You just can't do that. I said, it's hard for us. Well, guess what? It was silent for about 30 seconds. Then he got about 10 feet away and started blowing again. Mm-hmm. And I thought, ooh, this is pretty incredible. I mean, whoever this kid is, I didn't know who he was. Mm -hmm. So I said to the little boy, I said, I can't believe it. You just did what I told you not to do. And look at me. You know who I am. You know how old I am. And it just didn't matter to you. I said, if you blow that thing one more time, I'm going to find your father and you'll wish you hadn't. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he, he I, will too and then i smiled at him you know and it sobered him but now look at that little exchange it's a little boy six years old yeah is that not helpful to a family oh it's helpful isn't yeah. it helpful for me as a pastor to know whose child that little boy is because then i know that the mother and father aren't doing very well mm-hmm. you know there's something going on in that family that that little boy has no, what's the word, uh, restraint, no, he's not intimidated. No, no fear of no authority. Fear. <laughs> no nothing. Isn't this the kind of life we should live together, that we know what our grandchildren are like? Mm. I'm going to tell one more story. When Joseph was in high school, Joseph had a young man that he played with that they got together. And one time I heard that this young man was being disrespectful in a bad way with his father. 
Mm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I was scandalized because this was a godly home and the father was a godly man. Mm-hmm. And I was disgusted to hear about how Joseph's friend was speaking to his father. Mm-hmm. And so I said to Joseph, I want you to go to your friend. I won't name him in this case. <laughs> and I said, I want you to tell him that if you ever hear him speak like that to his father again, that you will no longer be his friend. It will be over. Mm-hmm. Because I will not have my son being friends with somebody who is so disrespectful to his father. Now, you look at these little exchanges. Yep. Are these really the places and times that you want to keep your children from being around other Christians in your church and other children of the church? No, I don't think so. It's where there's a lot of good cross-pollination there. But I want to ask a question that I thought of when you were talking earlier. What I heard you essentially say is that it's going to help, you know, you were talking to the parents and you said it's going to help you immensely as you raise a teenage son or daughter to recognize your own sin. But how? I mean, what? how is that helpful? Well, for starters, it's helpful because it allows your child to feel that they're not the sore thumb of the universe. They realize that the Christian life is a life of repentance, which is what Luther had as the first of the 95 Theses. In other words, it gives you an occasion as a father and a mother to demonstrate the character that you want your child to have, which is not a character of perfection and making the right choices, but a character of repenting and asking God to forgive you. Well, so a lot of that then has to do with using that knowledge to actually establish a relationship with your son or daughter. Well, I would say that if you're willing to receive the admonitions of the pastors and their wives that work with your children, mm, yeah, that they will see that. Mm. There will be fruit of that, and you won't have to worry about establishing a relationship with your child. Mm. You will see that relationship with your child explode in tenderness and warmth and sympathy. It will be unbelievably sweet. Hmm. All you have to do is be a Christian. If you think that being a Christian is not making the right choices, but learning to see our sin, to confess it, to ask for forgiveness of God and of our family members. Yeah, and if you submit yourself to that, if you yourself submit yourself to the church Mm -hmm. and to preaching and and you submit your sins to the helpfulness of God's people, Mm -hmm. then you're a long way along the path. But if you're already hiding your own sins, Mm. and then you also have to hide your sins as they are replicated in your children, it's a double whammy. So that would be the case of what Tim brought up earlier, that somebody says you know, to their kids, don't screw this up, don't make me look bad in front of my, my people. But I think there is also the example of, it's almost as if, you have a parent who it doesn't tire, never tires of pointing out the sins of his or her kids. Well, that's true. I was thinking about this in the context of the beginning of the conversation. We were talking about what makes it difficult for kids, and really all we've dealt with are the, is the pressure of parents. Hmm. And really in the parents, all we've dealt with is the pressure of parents who are trying to maintain some kind of facade. But the fact of the matter is, 
there are so many besetting sins Mm -hmm. attending us. Maybe it's true that in Reformed churches or in churches in churches in general, the bigger thing is that we're trying to cover up and and uh, present ourselves in a good way. And that may be one of the biggest sins, just pervasive over all of us. But parents also have greed that reproduces in their children. Parents also have what? Laziness. Hatred. Hatred and anger. Anger that reproduces in their children. Mm -hmm. Laziness that reproduces in their children. And all of those things end up being seen. And if we, again, if we submit them all, to as Christians ourselves and as sinners ourselves, as parents, if we submit those things to the people around us, it isn't going to be necessarily a walk in the park, mm-hmm. right? But it's going to make the work of submitting our children to the church easier as well, because we're going to have experienced ourselves the, the wonderful benefit of listening to preaching that affects us and hearing counsel that affects us and that and that pushes at our sins and that helps us and, and having friends around us that live this way. And then we get to our children. We're going to, we're going to believe for them. We're going to have faith that they need that too. Can I say something about Pharisaism? Dad wrote on this somewhat, and it was very helpful to me. Dad made the point that a Pharisee never is willing to have the boundaries where God has established them. Okay. Because mm-hmm. he's so concerned about violating those boundaries that he sets up tons of fences that are even more constrained than God's law. And he tells you that those are the fences you need to mind. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he does that because he doesn't want you to violate the real fence of the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. So you surround the Sabbath, you surround sexuality you surround them with all kinds of secondary things we don't do this we don't do this now the problem with that is it teaches our children that the real sin is the fence that is not god's fence all right okay because that's what we multiply so when you look at the new testament what you see is the religious leaders are much more focused on the secondary fences that they've manufactured than God's fence. So that's why, for instance, you find Jesus saying the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Mm -hmm. He's trying to point out that things are a little bit out of proportion. And they were. They had all these fences about the Sabbath, but they didn't want somebody healed on the Sabbath. Do we believe there's Pharisaism today? And I think most people would say, no, we live in a licentious and antinomian day. You know, people have no standards. Well, yeah, that's evangelicalism, but let's talk about biblical churches, okay? Yeah, yeah. Do our biblical churches have standards? Well, this is why I'm so concerned about truth, beauty, and goodness, about the trivium, about what hymnal you use, Mm, about mm, mm -hmm. all these Charlotte Mason, about the school choices, about curriculum choices, about books, about music. All these things are ways that we think, having not had it when we were children, Mm -hmm. we think that if we adopt a Christian culture and worldview, that that's going to raise our children in a godly way. Yeah. But what we don't realize is the music that our children need to hear, the preaching they need to hear, the curriculum they need to have, the friendships they need to cultivate, all have in common the confession of sin and the repentance of sin and humility before God. Mm-hmm. 
Is that not the curriculum that we want our children to grow up with? Mm -hmm. And so why are so many of our children such proud punks? Why are we manufacturing people who are so confident of their taste in music, their taste in literature, their knowledge of the Constitution, all these other things? Now, I am not saying that we shouldn't raise children that know the Constitution. But listen, can you understand that if your top priority with your children is not their heart, but their mind and mm. their taste, yeah. you'll lose the heart. Whereas if you go for the heart, you'll have the mind and the taste. You know, nobody's telling you to stop being concerned about the curriculum of your children. But it is a small-minded, insecure, myopic individual okay. who is intense about secondary matters. That is Pharisaism. Mm -hmm. All right. And what we have to do is make sure, you know, they have a rule about moderating elders' boards and meetings. The one thing you have to do is make sure that you give priority to the most important thing on the agenda. And it sounds obvious, but it's actually not. No. It's hard to do it's that, you hard. know. Yeah. And so you can have the tyranny of the urgent. You can always make sure you get through the treasurer's report because then everybody can look at papers of figures, you know. Right. But right. what about a church discipline case that's intractable? Well, the same thing is true of your children. You can lose sight of all of the spiritual evidence that is in front of you. The, the flip of the hair, the shrugging of the shoulders, the, the music blasting in the room. You say, oh, no, 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 we've got the music down. I say, okay, fine. But all those temperamental posture indications of rebellion against mm -hmm. you or despising you or uh, just cynicism or just dead eyes. Mm. How many of your homes, those of you who are listening, have a child whose eyes are dead? Who gives you nothing, no emotional he, he's response. He's just yeah. dead. Shouldn't you just feel slain by that and think, what on earth have my husband and I done mm. that we have removed any hope of life from our son? Hmm. Okay. I want to say this because if we're going to talk about how to work with our children, we have to begin with the beginning. And the beginning is sin, repentance, forgiveness, and starting over again. Okay, but you said earlier that what we're talking about here is giving our kids space as they mm -hmm. become adults. But really, as i listening to you talk, you're talking about going for their hearts. You're talking about sin and forgiveness. I mean, there's nothing more intensely personal and close than what you're describing. And so how is it, you know, when, when you say give them space, I mean, how is it giving them space if you are that intense and personal and close with them? What if you're teaching your child to ride a bike? Okay. What does it mean to not give them space if they're learning to ride a bike? Huh. Training wheels and your hand on the, on the yeah, seat. You, you're forever running along beside the bike. You never take your hand off mm -hmm. the handle because then there's, there's danger. Mm -hmm. But you can just make sure there's never any danger if you just keep your hand on that handle. And for sure, one thing will be true. Your child will never ride the bike correctly. But And, and in the end... They'll probably be more damaged 
Well, <laughs> when they finally get on the bike and you're not there, they'll be more damaged. Yeah. Because they'll... you won't have given them the proper in- incremental relief from your helicopter mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that they need. Mm-hmm. And so you think about our children and the space that I think I'm trying to explain what Tim is talking about, but you think about the space that they need. Well, they need, they, they understand. Well, they're not stupid. They do, they do understand. Usually children do understand what you're expecting of them. They know what parameters they can get away with. They know what's going on, right? When a lot of parents, when you, when they hear space, they're thinking, okay, well, my kid wants to listen to this certain kind of music. They want to be around these certain kinds of kids and I'm uncomfortable. They want to watch these certain kinds of movies. I'm uncomfortable with these things, but here I am. I'm giving okay, them Okay, let me use an example of one of our daughters. One of our daughters had a friend who was several years older and was in our church. And this friend was sort of butch, but we didn't think much of it at the time. But then one night, all of a sudden, Mary Lee and I looked at each other and we thought, wait a second, this is weird. It turns out that this older girl was... Our daughter was feeling guilty for things. Mm. And, well, we put two and two together and we thought, okay, jealousy, protectiveness, exclusivity in the relationship, arguments about, no, 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 this is going to stop. And so she was out in the car having a relationship talk with this woman, right? And so when she came in, I said to her, sweetie, listen. This is going to be difficult for you, but your mother and I have talked, and you will no longer have any relationship at all with this young woman in our church. Mm. Now, is that giving her space? No. (laughs) No, it wasn't giving her any space at all. (laughs) Why would we do that when I'm saying give them space? Right. Well, it's because we thought, you know, this is some bad karma going on here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And this is a time for us to step in and absolutely control. And so with our children, there were times that we did that. And often it, it involved somebody that they were friends with in high school. And we said, nope, no more of that. Nope, that's over. That's over. Control. Now, what was interesting in this case is that our daughter looked at us and, you know, I was kind of expecting her to go into tears and, and fight and argue. And it was like she, she looked at me and she said, okay, dad. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, no, we're not talking about letting them listen. We had a young man, his father signed him over to us, went to the the judge, signed power of attorney in our church, because this young man had kicked his mother, Hmm. kicked her intentionally. Hmm. And so he said, you're going to go live with Pastor Bailey, right? You know, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so he got, he signed him over to us. We had power of attorney. Yeah. He came to live in our home, and he had an iPod that was filled with blasphemous, filthy, violent, debauched music. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I said to him, no, we do not allow any of that music in our home or to be consumed by our children. Does that sound like I'm giving him space? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. (laughs) And he kept arguing. After a number of days, I took him in the garage. And I said, you have not listened to me. You have argued and argued and argued. He had a very expensive iPod. I gave him a sledgehammer. And I said, okay, destroy it. Are you kidding me? I said, do it right now. 
And so he leaned over and smashed the snot out of his iPod, and it was done dead. No more arguments. It's over. And he didn't kick me either. Mm. Now, yeah, so we're not talking about, you know, let your kids express themselves. So where it matters, guys rapping about rape, mm-hmm. does that matter? Mm-hmm. No, it will not enter your mind. It will not enter your ears. You will not play it in the car when you're driving to school in the parking lot of your school. You will not have any of that music. Mm-hmm. Your wife, when she was little, she wanted to be chatting on the computer. And I said to her, no, you're not going to do any chat on the computer. <laughs> oh now, you, you that, think about today, like, <laughs> and it's like, you know. So, but. You want your children to go through what God shows by body parts, and that is that when they're very, very little, they're trying to find the uterine wall and attach themselves because it gives them nurture and safety. Uh Now, that should be a lesson to us of how close the mother should hold the baby Mm -hmm. when it's a few days old. And then it begins to roll around and kick and punch and stuff. And so it's feeling a little bit of independence, you know? It's not just sucking up to the womb, right? Pretty soon it's time to get out of here. Pretty soon it's time (laughs) to get out of here. Then, but it's still at the breast. Yep. Then it's in the arms. Then it's sort of toddling next to you with its hand around your finger. Then. It's, and you see what I'm doing. By the time you're in junior high school, all that's attached is he has his hand on your elbow and you have your hand on his elbow. Mm -hmm. Then you get to high school and it's shaking hands. By the end of high school, God has ordained it and you can see it with body parts. They're now desiring to mate. Mm-hmm. Okay, God ordained this. We need to have it by the time they are prepared to get married and to be independent, that we're not trying to cling on to them. And so we have to look at high school years as a time where we have to help them leave us. Mm-hmm. I tell my kids in high school, my goal with you now is I want you to let me die. That's what I would say to them. I've been successful as a dad if I'm free to die. Mm -hmm. You carry on the preaching of the kingdom of God. You do this. And listen, that requires us to give them space, okay? It requires us to set up an environment where they make bad choices and sin. We have to consciously want them to fail while they're still at home and we're there to pray with them and and dry their tears. That's the purpose of high school. And so if you're just trying to control them until the day they leave the home and then all of a sudden they're supposed to be, no, everything about high school should be give them space to sin, but choose the sins they sin. Mm. Does that make sense well, to you? I, I, it's very important you say that. You need to keep going, though, because choose the sins they sin. I mean, what you're saying is that there are some things that parents just absolutely have to step in, but they're supposed to still give them space. Yes, absolutely. Well, I would say, rewarding that, give them space as they sin, and because they're going to sin regardless. 
Don't you agree? Absolutely. That they're going to sin regardless. So you're not giving because them space. Because they're your children. You're not really giving them sake. space to sin. You're, you're actually sinning. giving them space as they sin to learn and to grow and to be there for them, to help them as they're being what they are. Like you, you're a sinner. And they're a sinner. And so you have to be there and help them. And there are times when you'll interrupt and say, no, you can't have that space. Because you know that they're not they're not ready to negotiate the danger that they're in at that moment. But for the most part, you have to give them appropriate space as they're learning about sin. Let me give you, let me give you an example. My dad always used to love it when I would find illegal fireworks and bombs. I'd bring them <laughs> home and he and I would go down to the creek. We'd walk about half a mile to the creek and drop them off the bridge and I tried to get waterproof ones that they'd fall down the water and then send a geyser up uh, in the air, big boom. Dad and I loved it. Now, I can imagine physicians and teachers and Sunday school teachers and pastors and elders and older women of the church and widows being horrified that I would say this. <laughs> but what I always knew was the one time when in all my love for firework things and bombs and everything, Explosions, and which... I mean, there were some pretty incredible ones <laughs> back then. What I remember is when I picked up a lady finger. Now, a lady finger is bigger than a black cat. So if you, I picked up a lady finger that was a dud, and as soon as I picked it up, it exploded in my hand. Oof. It was, I think, a couple of days before I got feeling back in my hand. It wow. was just numb for a couple of days. Now, if our children are going to sin, isn't it helpful for them to sin with a lady finger? Mm. Now you say, well, that's not a sin, it's stupidity, and why your father would let you do that. And I say, yeah, but don't you learn spiritual lessons from having a ladyfinger blow up in your hand? Yes, you do. You learn that life is serious. You learn that life is dangerous. Don't you think that that helped me not drive drunk years mm -hmm. later? In other words, if we're controlling our children and not letting them sin and not letting them make mistakes— what we're really teaching them is how superior we are in anticipating their sins and heading them off. What keeps coming to my mind is the illustration that we give to parents of young children. You know, they just were starting to learn to crawl and they reach out by the wall over to the outlet and they look up at the parents, right? They look back and see what's going to happen. And you have one set of parents who is determined to remove the option from a toddler or a small child crawling even from ever doing that. And so they put in outlets and all, or outlet plugs and all kinds of things like that. And so you have parents that are constantly hovering to make sure. And I think that that analogy can be carried all the way into high school. Oh, oh, and into life with children and grandchildren. Yeah, yeah. keep going. Well, and so the fact that your children are going to be leaving your home and they will be adults on their own is absolutely inevitable. And I think that a lot of parents haven't come to grips with that fact. That God that made reality. it that way. That's, that's a good thing. I like to tell parents that that's why sex exists because it's the only thing that can actually be <laughs> successful in breaking the bond of a mother trying to control her children. Uh, um. Well, maybe, but I keep thinking, like, if you have a... Do you think Mary's mother was happy about her traveling with Joseph to Bethlehem? 
Oh, that's something I've never wondered before. <laughs> that's a good question. If you get to the point where your kids are in high school and you are being a nanny state about their movies that they watch and the music that they listen to, not to say that you don't have that it's bad for a parent to have conversations, but if you're nannying that and like having to lock things down, you're way behind. You're way, way, way behind. And you need to come to grips with that reality because by the time they're in high school well the inclination of their hearts should be enough toward you mm. that the times where you have to interrupt are not so abrupt mm-hmm. or sharp you know tim was talking about his daughter her heart was toward him and so when he would interrupt it wasn't when he and mary lee would interrupt it wasn't this huge abrupt oh, I've been doing everything I wanted to do and didn't care what you thought all this time, and and now suddenly I have to care what you think. No, their daughter cared what they thought. And so the 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 cessation of the relationship wasn't so bad. Mm. And it wasn't so difficult. Not saying it was simple. You know, David, listening to you talk about the hearts, I hadn't thought of that, but that is so important that we win our children's hearts. It's so, 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 so important. And there's no time that it's more important than we have their hearts than as high school years when they're on the cusp of having to be responsible for their bodies, their children, their husbands, their homes. And they need to step into the responsibility and the authority that they're now ready to carry themselves with victories. And the most important victory they have before God is a history of loving and submitting to their parents, because that will allow them to go with a good conscience into the world, and that will keep them from being controlling people. So as I think about It's almost like you have to stop thinking about your kids, your children, as your son or your daughter, but think about them as another person. As a parent, as a father and mother, that's what you need to think about your high schoolers as. Okay, yeah. Maybe that because if you start to do that, you have a certain kind of, like, I have have sensed my inclination to take my kids for granted, even as they're young, and just assume that they're going to be right there along with me the whole way. And, you know, my daughter Bree is just 12 and I'm and my son Asher is like 11. And I'm just like, uh, okay, I cannot assume this. Well, Lucas, that's what I was going to say. It's not when they're teenagers that we need to identify what's coming. It's when they're, ch- when they're infants, you're holding in your hand, a, hmm. a human, a, a, a man, a child, a person, Mm-hmm. that person this is the inevitable yeah. result this is the inevitable future and if you're thinking about them the entire time as you're bringing them up that you're dealing with someone with agency mm. and mm. responsibility that you're responsible to deal with them and to help them and to bring them to that day when you ought to be able to say to them you know i've uh, more than once uh, with my daughters, 
as they've approached, and they're both out of the home now, but as they approached getting out of the home and as they were just out of the home, I would look at them and I would say, and because I believed it and because I wanted to strengthen them, I would say, it's going to be all right. It's going to be all right. You need to trust God. It's going to be all right. Now, I wasn't saying it's going to be all right because I said it so. Yeah. And I wasn't saying it's going to be all right because I'm in control of it all. You were making a statement of faith I in was, God. I was making a statement of faith in God to deal with them in their place of of individuation in their in their adult life. But you were saying that because they were afraid about the future. They might or? be well. It might be. It might what be. What child specific, at that age is not afraid? It, no, really, seriously. <laughs> maybe that's what we need to say here. Yeah. You have no clue how scared high schoolers are yeah. of their failure, of whether they can get a job and hold one, whether mm-hmm. they can pass their classes, whether they can do the most horrible thing that all of us had to do, which is to get a woman that you love to marry <laughs> you. I mean, these things, do, do any of us here want to go back to high school? No. Let's be honest. No. I would rather die than go back to high school. And I told our high school students that last week. Uh, did they laugh or cry? <laughs> they had sick looks on their face and kind of smiled. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, David is telling his children that he loves them mm-hmm. when he says that. Mm-hmm. Because he's telling them, I know how scary it is. And I'm, I want you to know it's going to be all right. Mm. everything's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. And it is a statement of faith in God that he's giving them, but it's also a statement of sympathy. Mm -hmm. A father who has his dignity is saying, I I am so sympathetic and empathetic with you. It's going to be all right. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's just beautiful. But we do have to start when they're infants. Mm-hmm. And so what do we think of them? What, what do we think of our children when they come to us? Well, what, we think they're our property. They th- we think they're an appendage. We think mm-hmm. they're, mm-hmm. Uh, they're pain in the chat, rear. They're chattel. Free they're, labor. They're free labor. They're yep. something that we can display. They're something mm-hmm. that can make us look good. We have all kinds of ways we consider our children yep. as ours, yep. but, we're, but God gave them an eternal soul. Mm-hmm. And they belong to him. And we, we spend so much of our raising them coming to the realization ourselves that that is the reality. Oh, you know, wait, this is and, a person. And, yeah. and if we're doing halfway decently, by the time they do individuate from us, they're somewhat ready mm. to take on that responsibility. I can imagine that there are many people who have listened to this conversation and have judged us. And have said to themselves, well, you know, they obviously don't know what Scripture says about raising children. Mm -hmm. They obviously don't have a very high expectation for godliness of their children. They obviously are unwilling, really, to look at their own sin, that they have such low expectations. I mean, Mm -hmm. that a pastor would actually recommend that people little kids be allowed to blow off fireworks. I mean, that's just the height of your responsibility. And what you need to do is do things right the way my husband and I do them. And, and yeah, we have failures, but I can imagine people saying, what a horrible church to have men like that as its pastors. And I just want to say to you, 
and I know this is going to sound like bragging, but honestly, if you knew about the character of the children represented at this table, I don't think anybody would not want their children and their grandchildren to have the character that ours do. I'm not saying they're sinless. And so you be very careful to not service your own pride and your own superficiality and your own, you know, I, people say, I would never be tempted by adultery. And I always say to them, well, so I guess to King David was your inferior. <laughs> you think about David with his children. Mm. And this certain type of person will say, well, that's because he committed adultery. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, life is very simple for you, isn't it? The difficulty of the individuation of Christian children and the false steps they take and the need for comfort when they take false steps, but the liberty to make false steps while they're still in the home mm. and the parent is there to pick them up, dry their tears, pray for them and say, it's going to be all right. Mm. This is the kind of person who wants that to happen with their children, that we have something to encourage them with. Mm -hmm. And if you're a certain type of person that likes to be told exactly what to do mm -hmm. and exactly what to think, but not how to think, then yeah, this is probably not the podcast for you. Mm-hmm. Because we're not interested in that. We're interested in building repentance, faith, forgiveness, character. We're interested in our children individuating in themselves, taking over the eldership, themselves taking over the older women function of the church, themselves becoming the pastors. And, and there's, there's no quick route. There's no And there formula. isn't. I no. mean, you just think about the sins on the part of just the pastors and elders, say, you know, the 20 or 25, 30 people that have been in that position in our church. Mm -hmm. We've had a lot of difficulties in, in the homes of the church officers. <laughs> and More to come. And the discipline has not been pleasant at the time, but it has produced a harvest of righteousness. Mm -hmm. And so you can do one of two things. You can either squelch it, and hope that your children go somewhere else to sin when they become adults. Mm. Or you can say, no, this is the right place to sin. Mm. Because here we will testify to you, to God's mercy, to me, mm. to me. And he will be merciful to you. Amen. We've got a lot more about teenagers coming in the next episode, so stay tuned. My name is Lucas Weeks, and the conversation today was with Tim Bailey and Max Carell. We serve as pastors at Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. For more great content, please visit warhornmedia.com. To support this podcast, you can donate at patreon.com slash outofourminds. Bye for now.